Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Lorna Driver-Davies. Lorna is an experienced nutritional therapist and specializes in women's health. In part one of this podcast, we take a deep dive into endometriosis along with diet and lifestyle interventions to help to improve it. So without further ado, Lorna, welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here today. It's so good to have you on. Um, it's been a long time coming for sure. And I mean, a long time coming. Yes. <laughs> Very excited. Thank you. <laughs> now, I know we briefly spoke um, before the recording about your recent lecture at the British Society of Gynecological Endoscopy. Yes. I've, I've butchered yeah. that name, haven't I? <laughs> well, they have their annual kind of big meeting each year over about three days. And uh, this year it was obviously done uh, virtually. Um, and this is an amazing conference where all these surgeons come together who specialize um, in surgery for endometriosis and they're looking at all their kind of innovative ways around different types of surgery and techniques and things but also what's amazing is that they invite um, other professional practitioners who work with endometriosis in different sectors so it could be like a pelvic uh, pain physio uh, practitioner and they asked me to come and speak as a nutritionist which was a huge honor and also just such a positive thing for uh, for surgeons to be really open to wanting to know about how they can, you know, speak to patients and how nurses can talk to patients about diet and endo. So it was very well received. It was so wonderful. And I just think this is a great, great thing for us modern times and the direction that endo is going in. I thought it was awesome. I mean, when you told me, I was thinking this is such a big step in terms of nutritional therapy being accepted in in the mainstream especially for conditions like this yeah and actually you know this there's there's so much more research now and so much being you know looked at diet and looking at interventions and you know i really with endometriosis it's i don't don't think it's like one therapy that's going to solve it all for you it's a combination of lots of things together so it's you know it's surgery it's working with a nutritionist it's working with a physio it's it's you know mental health side of it. it's having you know counseling or psychotherapy like it's kind of all things together you know it's great i completely agree now for people who who might be listening um or who might be diagnosed with endometriosis and may not be entirely sure what the condition is let's dive into that first yeah sure so essentially this is where you've got cells that would normally be residing in your uterus in the womb and they have moved to different parts of the body now there's lots of reasons why they've moved and there are lots of uh you know etiologies around endo but this is kind of the the simplified explanation of what's happened and most commonly those cells end up moving and depositing themselves um in the kind of pelvic cavity in a woman um, you've got less common sort of places like very strange places like the lungs uh, or the nose or the spine. Um, and you can imagine that in those slightly more unusual places, it kind of makes the condition actually uh, more tricky and awkward and uh, more difficult to deal with. And so actually sometimes the treatment is uh, has to be with different types of doctors as well. So you've got maybe like a, um, you know, a, a lung specialist who has to work with the uh, gynecologist, for example. But really most commonly you're looking at uh, sort of outside of the, 
uh, uterus but in that kind of residing area really really commonly around the intestines for example mm-hmm. uh, the bladder so you can imagine that you get other symptoms that go with that because of these endo patches and I'll explain these little patches or lesions because those are a big part of you kind of understanding the condition so once those cells have settled there they start to grow like they are part of that tissue so let's say this is kind of on the side of your uh, you know your bowel and they form these like lesions that I think the best description I would sort of say is if you imagine if you had a burn on your arm, what that would look like, you know. And so that site is pretty kind of angry and inflamed. And you've got this weird thing going on where the immune system goes, oh, dear, it's obviously very upset and angry. I need to go in and kind of try and deal with this and try and work on healing. But at the and then the opposite way, the body's like, hang on a minute, you're not supposed to be there. I'm going to actually kind of attack you. There's a little bit of an autoimmune aspect going on and the the immune system. So the immune system is, is a huge part of this condition. And I think for listeners, what I tend to find is what people take away from understanding it is that they just talk about the fact that it's estrogen fueled. So it's a hormone Mm -hmm. condition, which is absolutely true, but uh, there is this kind of symbiosis between um, hormones or like sex hormones and the immune system. And, and, you know, a good example of that would be, ovulation involves the immune system um going into labor is part that partly involves the immune system so the relationship between those two is super close and so these lesions and patches there's a lot of complex stuff that's going on there you've got the production of uh localized estrogen so when we're talking about estrogen with we know we're not just thinking about the global amount of production we're talking about extra being produced on these lesions or patches and actually what then what then goes on is that the estrogen, uh, high estrogens there, increase more inflammation. And that inflammation then makes more estrogen. And that kind of goes around in a bit of a loop. Yeah. So these, these little patches themselves aren't just like a wound that needs to be dealt with. They're like a whole little kind of, you know, whole, whole, whole thing in themselves. And that is, that's part of the pain in 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 the condition the inflammation and and all sorts of other issues that we'll kind of talk about as well that's hugely interesting and it must be really difficult for people if you're having these patches all over your body because you might be getting these kind of like cyclical symptoms every every month that go along with your cycle but maybe you have nothing to do with what you assume which would be you kind of your your downstairs region yeah exactly so as you're if you're if if you're menstruating then when you're effectively like bleeding uh then you're also that that's going to be going on on those lesions and patches i think it's also important to sort of say though that the that the discomfort or pain or issues associated with the condition are not just going to be during your period they can happen at any point in the month. Um, women can report, for example, very right. uncomfortable um, ovulation. Mm-hmm. And then you get secondary issues. So, you know, if you've got a few of these lesions or patches and they're kind of in corresponding areas, because they're very upset and inflamed, they can get kind of sticky and then they start to sort of fuse together. And that's where you get adhesions. And so actually surgery is often dealing with uh, the patches themselves, but also releasing, ad- releasing adhesions. Um, and depending on like how long you've had endo for, or what sort of treatment process you've been through or your journey that's, that's probably the better way of saying it um you know women can end up with some with some quite tricky situations and just to say on that one surgeons can often go in and go hey you know what I'm, i can see that there's the adhesions are quite bad but it's affecting the ovaries and fallopian tubes and i know that you still want to have children 
So I'm going to do a little bit of tidying up and then you get your babies out of the way and then you come back and I'll finish off that bit because I've had clients, for example, where they've had an ovary taken out because, it, you know, literally it's just completely mushed in adhesions and stickiness and inflammation. So it's not happy. But by that, by that point, if she's had children, it's like, okay, fine. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so it's, um, yeah, complicated. <laughs> That's extremely complicated. And in terms of diagnosis, how would you, how would you diagnose it? And maybe we can compare nice guidelines to what you potentially see in clinic. Yeah. So the kind of gold star for diagnosis is sadly going to be, um, having surgical intervention, um, You can, to an extent, see it present um, on an ultrasound um, or MRI. And actually, these days, uh, a lot of surgeons, gynees will will start with that process. When I'm saying that, I think for listeners, it's, it's, it's important to understand that, you know, access to different types of specialist care is a bit uneven in the UK. So you could go and have a scan and perhaps the person looking at your scan is not really trained to look at endometriosis so it's worth kind of trying to look for specialists where that gynecologist looking at the scan is very very used to trying to look for it mm-hmm. so it's you know anything i think where you can maybe do this less um less sort of full-on whole full-on thing of surgery first as part of that process is is a kind of a good thing and then you know your gp or consultant would be starting anyway with looking at symptoms and so the NHS, you know, NICE guidelines are, are, are chronic pelvic pain, um, dysmenorrhea. So that's painful periods. But I think for listeners to say we're talking on a pretty epic level here as well. So this is period pain, which really, really affects your life, affects work, um, you know, affects relationships, etc. Um, se- issues with sexual intercourse and pain. This is because obviously uh, endometriosis can be growing kind of around the cervix and kind of further up. But remember also that whole area is quite delicate and and inflamed or you've got bladder issues for example sex is going to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. uh gastro symptoms super common and we'll talk more about we'll talk we'll come back to the gut a bit later i know we will yeah um and then again you know genourinary issues and then fertility is 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 sadly a big kind of factor in that and just to say also that some women uh particularly if they had really painful periods and difficulties say like as a teenager early 20s might have gone on contraception for like 10 years and then they meet somebody and decide to maybe try for a baby and then they're like oh whoa hang on a minute I've got a lot of something going on here that's that's difficult and getting in the way of me conceiving so that could be the first time that women sometimes even get into this whole subject so it's usually these days more about sort of 28 and you know over um and just generally mid-cycle pain so with with yeah what I do with clients is where we're suspecting it is say, you know, make a symptom diary that runs over the next three months, be really specific about maybe activities that you cannot do so that your doctor has a comparison between understanding what standard period pain is like, and then understanding what possible endo pain is like. I mean, I'll give you an example, you know, women who will take painkillers, but that doesn't really uh, cut the mustard. You know, this is kind of, or women who are like literally fainting or throwing up. These are quite common things that are, you know, all, all that the pain is so engulfing that you are just almost a bit like I can't even sort of think. Um, that's definitely th- something that women will talk about. They'll just be like almost like they're glazing over, like it's completely just like like, like brain fog with pain, really. Yeah. 
Okay. So if, if women are experiencing these kinds of symptoms and go to their GP to, to, to get a real diagnosis, it would have to be done by a, um, is it an endoscopy or laparoscopy? Uh, laparoscopy. Yeah, yeah. Keyhole surgery. Pretty much in most cases, of course, you're going to get cases where they can see it on a, a scan or an MRI. Yes. And, and they, you know, if it, if it's a really like good surgeon, they might say, do you know what, looking at your symptoms and looking at what I think I can see here, I probably think we can get away with you not having um, any surgery. Mm-hmm. So they will, you know, I, I I think there's a bad name about surgeons, but actually all the surgeons that I know are really cautious and would actually rather not go in and do that if, if anything else can be done before that point. And obviously some is, you know, investigatory. So they'll go in and they'll come back out and say, we can see this. You need to consider whether you want us to go in again and do this much work on it or not. So, yeah. I think it's also uh, good for me to kind of cover all the, some of the things that I also look for as well, like other symptoms that kind of go with this that are not kind of part of the NICE guidelines. Absolutely. Uh, so women will say that they have uh, chills or fever-like symptoms or get quite achy, so they feel like fluey, um, either before their period or during their period or both. Um, very heavy periods, uh, you know, menstrual flooding, um, quite bad mood issues, so very severe PMS or almost like PMDD and just generally quite unwell. So like easily picks up things, uh, gastro symptoms, like other factors and also other um, conditions that often are found in endo. So things like uh, thyroid disease, uh, things like lots of gut dysbiosis, other autoimmune conditions uh, like lupus, for example, because they, you know, they all like to kind of like come in with each other. (laughs) and they can make things worse as well so yeah okay so they can make things worse so you're looking for these kind of comorbidities along with yes okay that's interesting yeah and those and those like i mean let's take thyroid disease as an example like Mm -hmm. if your thyroid is well let's take just straightforward being underactive so hypothyroid you know your system is running a bit slow which also means that things like your ability to detoxify estrogen is going to be slowed down um, or you're more likely to be a little bit more higher in estrogen and sort of lower in progesterone because there's a connection there with the thyroid and then when looking at things like like Hashimoto's thyroiditis so autoimmune wow well look if you've got elevated uh, thyroid antibodies you're already really inflamed and it's like a broken window thing isn't it if you've got you've got existing inflammation already it can set off other inflammation other places and disease progression so I commonly see those two things together, actually, Hashimoto's and endometriosis combined, and PCOS as well. PCOS as well as endometriosis. Now, that's an interesting one. And that's like, I guess, quite a difficult one if people are diagnosed with both of those because they both affect fertility quite significantly. Totally. And they don't, they're like, um, they're not like sisters, they're like cousins. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's a lot of Venn diagram with those two because they're both, like inflammatory, you've got the kind of metabolic aspect of PCOS. Both have issues with, uh, you know, estrogen. So obviously in PCOS, because you've got this irregular cycle where ovulation isn't working properly, um, you often end up with a bit of like, I don't like the term estrogen dominance, but unopposed estrogen is the better term. So you can, t- you know, I had a lady once say to me, I didn't realize you could get these together. And right. I said, well, they kind of like, they both set a nice environment for each other even though, and there's definitely lots of clinical overlaps in terms of how you, you know, how you deal with it for sure. 
Okay. So in, in terms of like the development of these conditions, like a lot of people might be thinking, is it my genetics? Have, it, I, have I inherited this or have my genes put me at a disposition for, for getting endometriosis? Or yeah. is it potentially my lifestyle choices which have left me um, or put me at a disadvantage in terms of getting these kind of conditions? Uh, well, I would say kind of both. So some women will will definitely have endo from the point that they start menstruating which means that this these movement of these cells so it's the movement of the cells but also you're thinking about if the cells went to somewhere that, that they aren't supposed to go how come the immune system didn't get rid of them so we could argue that this actually happens much more commonly but in lots of cases there is there's not this defective immunosurveillance going on uh, so one of the most officially recognized um, theories on endo is called retrograde menstruation. Retrograde menstruation is actually fairly common. So this is where blood fl flows back up the pelvis and then obviously into the fallopian tubes, etc. And that happens fairly commonly. But you have to think, well, what's the difference here? Like if that's happening in some women, but not others. And, you know, the immune system is kind of going, oi, you're not supposed to be there. Off you go. But in <laughs> other women, it's not. It's letting it kind of progress. And then there are other factors kind of within that. So. That's kind of like one theory, but also women can go on to develop this much later in life. And this is where you have to look at things like, you know, immune system weaknesses. You have to look at things, the fact that cells uh, can be changing. These are all part of some of the kind of theories as well. So, yeah, you could it can be something that you just get a deck of cards for, unfortunately, from the point where you have periods or that it's already there, by the way. And it's all it. But but we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, being affected by the environment, whether, whether it gets switched on or not. So when I did a, yeah. did a case case chapter, she's a good example of that, where she had family history of autoimmunity, uh, all three of her, all, her and two other sisters all have thyroid disease. Uh, and one sister had lupus, which is also estrogen fueled. And she had no endo symptoms until I think after her second child. So she's quite a lot older. This is like, we're talking way much more into sort of like late thirties, forties here. But I think it was always there. But I think what switched it on was she got super inflamed and run down from getting a thyroid condition. And then actually she had lots of disrupted sleep because she had a two year old that just wouldn't sleep. And, you know, you and I both know like how, how important sleep is. Absolutely. So if you're if you're getting if you're that deprived of sleep, which means that all sorts of things aren't working properly, including your immune system's ability to regulate itself and deal with actually like rogue cells you know things that are getting out of control okay that makes sense so if genetics kind of lights the fire of endometriosis that our, our lifestyle and environment can fan the flames as it were yeah yeah or equally you've got someone who's who's you know predisposed like that but it never ends up you know happening mm -hmm. so it's kind of like when i get really deep into looking endo because there's all these so many factors it's so it's, it's really fascinating so i'll give you give you me as an example so i've done all my genetics and uh, I definitely got some things where you look at things like uh, my ability to, to make uh, nucleotides is kind of dysfunctional. So I have to supplement them. And okay. that dysfunction is associated with endometriosis. And I have a little bit of that. And I've got some detox pathways that just don't detox estrogen properly. And I have something else. <laughs> I'm, I'm what's called homozygous comp. So I'm deficient in, in my ability to make that comp pathway like work properly. And if you take all of those three things together, that's a that's a that's some gold stars <laughs> to, to, to potentially develop endometriosis you know but then my view is actually it's 
it's it's a small amount and I've been all right with it because I've looked after myself and because I because I've kind of you know obviously I'm in this whole kind of arena but I'm doing everything I can to keep everything sort of happy we all get our genetic deck of cards don't we so it's a case Mm -hmm. of like how we then deal with them on the day-to-day now you mentioned uh, I completely agree with that but you mentioned nucleotides and I just want to rewind back to that because some listeners might be unclear with what what they are and why they're beneficial to supplement yeah so these are like these are basically the components of of, of nucleic acids so the building blocks for RNA and DNA and they're really important because obviously they keep those components kind of working as they should and healthy and they and that part is also part of also how the immune system works as well so I know that actually by making sure that I'm supplementing that, I'm keeping my immune system, you know, strong in other ways. And actually, certainly I can really look back in time when I was in my 20s and I didn't know about any of this stuff. I would definitely pick up things much more quickly. Or if I got if I was unwell, I would get more inflamed. It would be harder for me to kind of uh, break that cycle, you know, feeling more achy for longer than, say, somebody else. Yeah. OK. Yeah. That makes sense. And in terms of supporting your detox pathways, because I understand when you say detox, it's detoxing estrogen. Um, yeah. Primarily, how are you doing that? So, I mean, estrogen, first of all, it isn't one estrogen. It's, it's, you've got three sort of subtypes there, but also yeah, estrogen as, you, yeah, <laughs> but estrogen as the estrogen, um, as it goes through. So essentially that's start from scratch. So you need to make a hormone, then you're going to use it, and then it becomes, it goes on the pile to get detoxified. But during that process, the um, let's take E2, so that's your strongest type of estrogen, uh, which is the estrogen that you mostly make in higher levels um, through your kind of menstruating years. Estrogen types change in menopause and they change in pregnancy. And um, so, by the way, when you're pregnant, because you make a make a much softer, gentler type of estrogen, lots of health conditions tend to go away during the pregnancy, mm-hmm. so particularly autoimmune type conditions as well that would be fueled by stronger, more aggressive types of estrogen. So estrogen has to be sort of like it gets broken down in subcategories as it sort of moves through the detox pathways. And it, to make it simple for listeners is that you're taking something and then sort of making it a bit more toxic and then trying to make it a bit less toxic and sort of package it and keep it all safe so that it sort of moves through that whole process without it kind of affecting you because i think hopefully listeners understand that actually once you start if you start doing detoxing in the wrong way it's like opening a pandora's box and you kind of release all these things into the system without them being uh you know without you protecting the body so the sort of safe passage of this kind of estrogen metabolism and detox has has to be done properly and once that's gone through your liver that's obviously ending up back in the gut. And then the last point is going to be the bowels, which is also why I talk all the time about fiber and microbiome and healthy bowel movements, because that's an integral part of not just female hormone balance, but also uh, really managing endometriosis and and uh, and the whole that whole kind of topic, really. We'll definitely get on to, to uh, a little bit to do with gut health later and especially diet. Um, I just want to rewind back to... You, t- you spoke about pregnancy now there's yeah. definitely an immune oh let, let me get my words out immunological component as well because i know like you you said it when pe- women are pregnant it can almost downregulate autoimmune conditions in terms of their yes. symptoms and things like that yeah even really i mean i'm not saying you know some autoimmune conditions are worse than others but even late stage ms for example 
that can the kind of symptoms of that can regress somewhat when people are pregnant um yes. which is incredibly yeah. interesting and that also ties quite yeah. nicely into something that i wanted to talk to you about is the contraceptive pill as a treatment or for endometriosis yes um actually what i see more um is recommendations on having a, a, a merino or kalina coil um so this is where you've got localized um progestin uh amplified kind of from that coil inside and i probably see that recommended more i'll tell you also why if you've had laparoscopy it's quite common that it's actually fitted like there and then so it's done when you're actually under anesthetic so you wake up and it's kind of already done so that's that and that is used um more as a kind of pain prevention so when we're when we're looking at things like the pill or the coil um, they're really there to either, you know, stop a period happening because the periods are still very painful and difficult to deal with. Um, and just again, to kind of sort of protect that area as well. So I probably see that more more recommended than than I would say the standard sort of pill. It depends on the person and the situation. Right. That makes sense. And it is, yeah. so that's in terms of managing symptoms and things like that. But I have read that some, maybe this is an old school type of practice, but some clinicians have been saying that you should possibly think about getting pregnant earlier. Yeah. I mean, so the, the sort of more old fashioned recommendation used to be also, by the way, this was, you know, I, I, doctors and and the way that doctors speak to patients obviously has had to change quite a lot over time but mm-hmm. women would be literally just told well if you get pregnant it'll probably just get better and go away and in a lot of cases it does but that is not a practical modern day recommendation um and particularly it's completely at odds at women who obviously would love to get pregnant but they're finding it very difficult yes. um but if I, I always love a bit of history on the subject so People often say to me, do you think that endo is much worse these days? Do you think we see it more? And there's there's so many ways you can answer that question. But one thing to look at is that, you know, women are having more periods because if you think, you know, back in olden days, and you probably would have been married by age 18. And if you weren't using contraception, um, then you might have been going on to have quite a lot of babies. So basically also breastfeeding is protective. So if you can imagine you're working your way through the years where you're, there's not much of a gap between you being pregnant and then feeding a baby and then getting pregnant again. It's kind of on a cycle. So how many periods have you, are you really going to get through your twenties? Um, so these days women, you know, leave it much later to, to conceive for all sorts of reasons. Um, and again, that's just way more periods. And you have to think every period that you have is, is more of that cycle, that endo cycle going on, on those lesions and patches. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. So in terms yeah. of, prevalence have you seen it i suppose the statistics is it more prevalent now than ever before yeah i i feel like it is it's difficult to say because um you know do we have better technology better research uh, are we sharing data better i mean you know last year the government did their first kind of parliamentary inquiry into endometriosis so they did a huge survey so this so lots of interesting data came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like it's it's becoming the topic sort of of the time. But I, I feel confident in saying that I think it's definitely a lot worse. Also, you do have to remember that way back, you know, in, in, in historical times, if you had this type of thing going on, nobody would have really understood what was going on. So yes. you would have sort of just, just just like lived with it. And that's kind of, you know, that sort of would have been it. 
also i mean you get some interesting i had a client once who had some gastro surgery at like 60 something and i got her as a client at like that kind of age anyway so she says to me oh yeah the gastro surgeon when i came around said oh madam you have endometriosis and she was like endo what and he was like yeah and so she explained that he could see really old lesions and patches that were not active anymore so they're kind of like really old scars basically okay but she'd had a completely like normal menstrual history gone on to have three children no problems so also by the way the amount of endo you actually have it doesn't indicate anything like meaning you know you have quite a lot of endo and actually don't feel too bad and they have a tiny bit and it causes all sorts of problems so it's you know again it's like also i do think there's real immune dysfunction in Mm -hmm. in women who have endo and all sorts of things that aren't quite working as they as they would if that makes sense yes that does make complete sense um and especially when we're talking about the immunological component before i think it makes sense that it's both a, a hormone but also immune driven problem as well as inflammation now, in terms of yeah. what people can do, in terms of empowering people, is there particularly is there a dietary protocol that you follow? And I, I want to touch upon this in a little yeah. bit more in depth later on. Yeah. So I think if you if you if we take what I was saying earlier on, like into two sort of categories, think about the fact that you're wanting to manage hormones. There. When I also say that, we're not just talking about estrogen. We're, we're talking about other factors kind of within that. Yeah. And then the other side of it is we're thinking about it being an anti-inflammatory diet. Yes. Um, and sort of putting those two things together is like, we're thinking about anti-inflammation, but also we're thinking about immune regulation. And, and this is why um, it's really common when I talk to journalists, for example, we'll always talk about immune boosting. I'm like, you don't want to boost the immune system, do you? Because otherwise that's also immunity. We want an immune system that is not under-functioning or over-functioning. So when we're talking about things like vitamin D, who's like a master immune regulator, uh, you know, nutrient or hormone, um, it's about, you know, keeping things kind of stable and happy. So in terms of sort of dietary approaches, um, I think what I do, what tends to lean towards is the Mediterranean diet. Um, And then there are other tweaks and changes within that, depending on the person. So, you know, are they dairy free or not? Are you excluding meat or not? You know, shall I go into some of those um, points on that for you, Ben? Yes, please. That yeah, be brilliant. Yeah. So the the Mediterranean diet anyway is good for lots of reasons, and actually um, we know from from research and some of your wonderful previous kind of podcast uh, you know guests that it's great for the microbiome, and actually endometriosis and the microbiome have a big big relationship. Um, all the sort of latest new research is looking at things like how antibiotics can be used to treat lesions, um, looking at things like the bacterial hypothesis um, uh, theory, which is looking at actually how bacterial infection creates inflammation in the gut. And this kind of goes on towards contributing towards things like, uh, you know, endo. Um, so that, that for me kind of is helping to support things like gut flora and sort of gut health kind of in general, but also that you've got a lot more of those like, you know, monosaturated fats, um, you should be getting a lot of uh, oily fish, omega-3. Omega-3 is, is super, super critical in endometriosis because women tend to be low, but also there's a lot of research papers looking at disease progression, but also omega-3's role in um, things like how inflammation is progressed. Mm-hmm. So for example, there's a relationship between um, a transcription protein called NF-kappa-B, which is part of how inflammation kind of occurs. 
and NF-kappa-B is, um, has a strong relationship with endometriosis and NF-kappa-B can be um, managed by, uh, by upregulating, uh, or sorry, by increasing your omega-3 uh, levels. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about uh, oily fish or supplementing a fish oil, or if that's not um, something that you would eat normally like for ethics or, or whatever, um, looking at things like uh, vegan vegetarian oils, but those have to have really good significant levels of EPA and DHA, which is not as hard to find in, in vegan oils, really. Um, mm -hmm. Steering away from too much omega-6, which can be inflammatory. So being just being like not overeating on things like nuts, for example, that are more fashionable and high consumption these days. And um, the red meat and dairy thing is this, which is that they did a study uh, looking at how portion, more portions of red meat basically was shown to be, you know, that you're more likely to, uh, to end up with endometriosis or it kind of gets worse. But I do say a caution there, which is that I think it's important to think, well, not all meat is the same. So if you're buying, you know, really good quality, like grass fed meat, which will be uh, much more anti-inflammatory type meat because the cows are eating grass. So they're getting more omega-3 in their diet. They're not having grains, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps you're only having it every so often. It's almost like, you know, spend your money on the good stuff. And, you know, low iron and ferritin is super common in endometriosis. And they're often very tired. I mean, exhaustion and fatigue and chronic fatigue and ME are all very common, common, uh, common conditions that you see. Uh, tied in with endo and so maybe a little bit of red meat here and there is good it depends on the person the dairy again is about it being uh inflammatory and again you get a dairy crossover certainly with into pcos sometimes it's an issue um okay so oh, so dairy is an issue for for multiple conditions especially yeah it can be okay yeah but then i'll just do a flip on you for that <laughs> there's some other research that says that actually women who didn't have enough uh dairy in adolescence we're more likely to go on to uh, to end up having more surgeries for endometriosis. And I was thinking about that. I was like, that's really interesting. I was thinking it could just be to do with the fact that dairy is nutritious um, and that they got more nutrients when they were younger. So it's not a one size fits all. It's it really, I, I think the thing I want to say to listeners is that you can end up with endo thinking, getting completely stressed and freaked because you're like, oh, I can't have this and I can't have that, I can't have this, I can't have that. That's very stressful and stress is really bad for endo. So it's also about maybe working with a professional to work out what is right and what isn't right at all. Um, I'll talk about um, histamine and gluten as well. So we're not, yeah. not, not related together, but as separate things. But um, can, we, gluten... can we just touch on some of the points, mm. breakdowns, just some of the things which you've just spoken about now. So the uh, omega-3 yeah. point is really interesting because yes. I've touched upon this yeah. in the past. And when Marilyn Glenville ca came on, we were, we were talking about this. And I actually got yeah. my omega-3 to omega-6 ratio measured. Oh, and, cool. Um, Good. I've, I do it. I do it quite regularly. But when I first got Good. it done, it was like it was reasonably high to what I thought it would be. So it was like seven to yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, uh, seven to one, omega six to omega three, and I was like, right, okay. And I wanted to get that down because the first time I got it done, it was even higher than that. I think it was like nine. Okay. Um, and one yeah, of the, yeah. one of the things like I eat oily fish, like big fan of sardines and mackerel and all the smelly fish that most people don't like to eat. So. That wasn't a problem, mm. in, in my opinion, in terms of omega-3 intake. And I take supplements occasionally and things like that. But one of the yeah. things which was a problem which occurred to me was nut intake, which you highlighted. And yes. particularly I was eating a lot of almond butter. Like I have a, uh. a, a fairly high fat 
low carbohydrate diet i mean i do this yeah. cyclically yeah um, but when i do I, I tend to lean on nuts and that was a big issue and i should know better but when once i kind of remove nuts out of my diet or certainly reduce the intake significantly to one portion yeah. every other day yeah i am um, yeah the my omega-6 to omega-3 ratio came down so it's now four to one um yeah yeah, yeah. And I think that it's like we all do it because it's really easy to sort of fall into that thing because obviously you know how it is like Instagram magazines, like, oh, not this, not that. It's like it's very trendy. And it's Someone delicious. once said to, yeah, I, oh, <laughs> yes, I know. We've all been there at like 10 o'clock at night with a spoon in the jar, haven't we? <laughs> so, you know, uh, especially lockdown. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, oh, man, I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something <laughs> on that. Hang on a minute. It was nuts. Omega three to omega six ratio and uh, over consuming. Yeah, nuts. that was yeah. it. Right, hang on. Okay. Someone once said to me, a good way of controlling your nut intake is to think how many nuts could you actually pick yourself? Because remember, like we just get like bags of nuts, you just buy nuts and they're just there. So if you actually had to go out and forage them, you probably would give up after a while and you probably would end up with a small amount in your hand. Yeah. Um and I think <clears throat> also you mentioned keto, so or at least what let's let's kind of say that again so like we're looking at sort of low carbohydrate high fat medium sort of proteins are right? yes exactly. i do actually think that's i do actually think that's quite helpful for endo it, it depends on the person like if you if you just get an endo client let's say they're quite new working with me and they are absolutely exhausted and they have a lot of blood sugar stuff going on you kind of need to get them on a like quite on quite balanced diet first of all um, and then if I feel like they're kind of energy wise, I can sort of lower the carbohydrates. It can be anti-inflammatory for me to put them on that sort of lower carb, medium protein, higher fat diet. It depends on the person. Certainly if they come along and they've also got PCOS, you might be kind of considering like that aspect as well. So it, that's why it shouldn't be a one size fits all type type diet regime. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And the, the red meat um, element, which you spoke about, I'll actually come on to that in a little bit. So maybe we can cover the gluten and dairy component, because I find this really interesting because you get some people mm. which have cross reactivity with both of them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there's like almost no studies on endo and gluten. There, well, there is like one, but then what there is a lot of is looking at uh, gluten and autoimmunity. And obviously there's, we have a ton of data on that now. So that's the data that I think you should be looking at. And, and also looking at also other conditions that are affected by gluten that you probably will find an endo, like for example, the molecular mimicry, mimic, molecular mimicry <laughs> with the thyroid and gluten and uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which you also commonly find in endometriosis. So it's, it's, that's why it's like in that situation, I'd be thinking, well, I'm going to take gluten out because they've got, you know, this, this thyroid issue and that's going to have a good knock on, knock on effect for the endo as well. And, you know, all the time, I mean, this is just my clinical experience. Women will say, I do feel better not having gluten and certainly my things like adhesions or pelvic pain or whatever sort of feels better if I don't have it. That's interesting. Um, is it all, I mean, you're probably going to say yes it is of course but like i just want to to clarify is it all sources of gluten because some people are saying that they can now intake levels um or certain certain amounts of sourdough bread for example if it's you know fermented for a long period yeah of time. i think yeah i think it's better if someone you know removes it and then is quite strict for some time and lets the dust settle and lets things sort of improve and then and then you could consider 
uh, introducing things like that occasionally, if that sort of works for the person. Um, You know, again, you've got to also think like no one can live in a bubble. It's quite hard. So if you've got a got a job and you've got family and life and like, you know, like it can get again, it can get very stressful thinking about what you're going to eat if you have endo when also you've got to think about everybody else in your house as well. So yes, again, it's, it's, you know, but, and, but I say, I'm sure you, everyone knows, knows anyway, but you could eat really badly on a gluten-free diet. I mean, if you just look at the things that are available in supermarkets, uh, that's, I often say like the ingredients that go into say like gluten-free shortbread, are, there's like, I don't know, 50 ingredients or something. And then you look at normal shortbread made in the traditional Scottish way. It's like five ingredients. So I kind of like, like if I have gluten-free pizza, it makes me so bloated so for me, I'm probably just going to have a normal pizza, but probably only have it a few times a year because I'm not great on gluten. It's kind of how I view it for me <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you just have to look at the back, the packet. <laughs> Let me get my words out. I feel I've not spoken to anyone in ages. So when I try and like, oh, articulate a sentence, it just goes to mush. <laughs> it's really, it's really annoying. Um, so, right. so when I look at the back of a packet of a gluten-free item, it doesn't matter what it is, what it is but bread in particular... There's so many fillers and binders to make it look like bread when it definitely isn't. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm just exactly. This this combination yeah. of uh, of ingredients cannot be good for you in the long term. No, and also you get people who will react to like xanthan gum, so like they're right. having gluten free bread and they can't work out what's like going on. And also, look, not everyone tolerates all the gluten free versions of things. Like actually for me, I'm um, not that there are not that there's gluten in oats, but like oats are used as an alternative, but I'm not good on oats at all um, and haven't been for a long time. You know, so, you are so, not the first person that said that to me. Um, I think ah, Anthony Haynes said that as well. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. I, go on, carry on. Yeah. If I was on desert island and I had to have like, you know, gluten bread or a bowl of oats, I would be choosing the gluten bread because I'm going to get quite a strong reaction from the oats actually. Um, and that also is by the way, food intolerances and allergies are very common in, in endometriosis. So again, it's like working with a practitioner to sort of like, sort. it's really like sorting the gut out. Cause if you've got a lot of food intolerances going on, and I'm sure you know this, Ben, it's, it's not necessarily indicative that you are genuinely long-term intolerant. It just shows leaky guts going on. Yes, no, I completely yeah. understand. That's why in some of these panels that you can get in terms of IgG panels, it can come out and come back and you're like, you, you, you've you gotten a sensitivity to everything when really you yeah. haven't. All that's happened is that you got as leaky and things are going into the yeah. bloodstream that shouldn't be there. Um, yeah, and, I, and actually, look, that whole picture is like going back to like sort of almost like what's the takeaway from this? That picture is just going back to the melting pot of inflammation. So like, it's like everything I'm, because even everything I'm suggesting when we're talking about about being anti-inflammatory, go back to what I was saying about these patches, like making estrogen equals more inflammation equals more estrogen. So actually you're balancing hormones out by also working on inflammation. That's what I'm trying to get across. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I completely understand. Now just to touch upon that, that red meat point, because I I have some interesting thoughts about this, because I think red meat can be is extremely nutritious for one, but for people with endo, I imagine it can be quite beneficial because A, you know, if you have a heavy period, they could do with the iron source. And yeah. B, it's like, especially things like offal can be incredibly high in vitamin A. And I know there's a link yeah. between vitamin A and endometriosis. And I'll just yeah. give you 
give you an example. So I read recently that fruit and vegetable consumption is part of the wider nurses health study, which is an mm-hmm. ongoing study found that vegetables and citrus, citrus fruit intake, um, reduced the risk of developing endo. And it was thought that the increased intake of pro-vitamin A reduced the risk. Now, I know this is an association, not causation, but I think there's a lot to be said about vitamin A levels and the immune function and how that interplays with endometriosis yeah, and other conditions yeah. as well. And actually on that subject of vitamin A as well, people are very scared about that because obviously all they sort of like, they think, oh, toxicity, and obviously you've got to be careful if you're thinking about conceiving or you're pregnant or like like that subject mm-hmm. but actually on the sort of western a price kind of side of things like i do love i do love vitamin a and <laughs> it's interesting that women with endo like vitamin a is the good example but there are others as well like like low zinc um when we're thinking about citrus fruit we're thinking maybe about vitamin c like things that are antioxidants effectively and that are there to help the immune system and keep things kind of stable I mean, this is why also going back to diet recommendations, you know, when I'm thinking about supporting endo, it's like colorful diet as possible, mm. you know, lots of access to lots of, you know, flavonoids and beta carotene family, like, like that sort of thing as well. Um, and remember also on the vitamin A front, you can, so obviously in plants, there's no vitamin A, you've got beta carotene, but not everyone converts beta carotene very well to vitamin A. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I've had some great conversations with women who have been, say, like vegetarian and vegan for a long time, which has meant they've missed out on a lot of crucial nutrients that would be really important for supporting their health and supporting endo and are happy to introduce little bits of things like, you know, here and there in order to get nutrients just like vitamin A kind of up, basically. Okay, that that's interesting. So maybe we can touch on upon veganism a little bit more. What kind of nutrients do people need to look out for um, if they have yeah. been vegan and they they are developing or have endometriosis? Yeah. So a vegan diet can be adopted for many reasons, but it can be sometimes adopted by women um, because they find it beneficial to manage endometriosis, which is fantastic. Because at the end of the day, also if you choose a healthy diet and it can be done in a healthy way. Um, that helps you manage pain, then that's great. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand that there are nutrient gaps in a vegan diet that are not going to be acquired through diet alone. So for example, almost non-existent levels of choline. Choline is such a kind of like pivotal, you know, nutrient, but also is involved uh, very much with things like, you know, methylation. Methylation is really important for your ability to detox estrogen methylation is also a way of you making energy it's important for mood mood issues are really common in endo Mm -hmm. so you know if you're not having like choline rich foods you're going to be missing out on that um everybody knows about b12 so i think i'll leave that for a second and look talk about the others but you get other b vitamins in a vegan diet but not in their very high methylated form so that's so just for the listeners for example the types of folates that you'd find in say like broccoli versus the, the higher methylated versions that you'd say find in like meat um, are, are kind of important. So that's kind of why if you're on a vegetarian or vegan diet or vegan diet, certainly thinking about supplementing um, methylated B vitamins. I mean, you should be supplementing B12 anyway, but we're talking yeah. about other B vitamins as well, like B6 and, and uh, B2 or whatever, those sorts of things. Uh, a vegan diet is also low in the amino acid methionine. Methionine is really important for, again, for estrogen detox. Um, and again, a lot of these things come back to like the immune system being supported, inflammation being supported, moods being supported, energy being supported. 
So I think if you're going to go on a vegan diet because it does actually help your endo symptoms, then please get some help with understanding of what you need to supplement as an extra. And also in this day and age anyway, not that I'm a massive over push of supplements because I think that food is the most important thing. You know, endo is a very, very nutrient hungry um, condition. The longer you've had it and, and you haven't had any help with it. So you haven't had any treatment or support. It will have been just it's like a forest fire. Think of like that. Yeah, it's like a forest fire. But the, you know, the the firemen fire people. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> haven't fire ladies uh, haven't turned up to put the fire out. And so it, it just like when they get there, the, the fire is so raging. You've got to get all your crew on board and all that crew are like all your new are like nutrient status. You know, so that's why I was saying exhaustion and tired all the time is a really common symptom. Hmm, that's really interesting. I'm sure there's cases of people, I think when a lot of people go towards a vegan lifestyle, they actually change yeah. a lot of their, their habits for the better in terms of reducing their consumption of processed foods and things. Yes. So I think yes. in the short term, it's likelihood that yeah. quite a lot of people might feel better. But if they are nutrient yeah. deficient in the long term, then it is going to lead to these... Um, these ailments and symptoms which you've just uh, yeah and they don't they don't tend to get the the, the, the kind of omega-3 topic right like you know they'll say oh yeah I drizzle lots of flaxseed oil on my feet I'm like mm, that's not really enough it's not really <laughs> going to like so so when you do like you're saying for yourself when I'm running like fatty acid profiles they, they tend to be like low and if they are maybe having too many nuts a bit more omega-6 a little bit of like elevated AA for example that sort of thing going on so again mm. that's why getting some help with it is kind of cool what is cool about it though is that um and 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 you and i both know that you could do a vegan diet and just eat processed food but people do it in the right way i do love it for the fact that you've got so many more plants there because on the other side yeah. of it if you're a classic kind of meat eater uh, like my friend's husband <laughs> literally doesn't think it's a proper meal unless there's any meat on the plate <laughs> so he's like where's the meat it's traumatized you know so so i think it teaches people to go plants first thing else like secondary thoughts sort of thing you know so it's, yeah it's good yeah yeah no i i completely agree with you there like i, I think a plant-based diet is highly beneficial for most people um so yeah, yeah. if anything yeah. to get more and plants also for fiber plant. yes yeah okay the fiber, fiber so component you, yeah great fiber 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 you know and um <laughs> I was um, listening to a fantastic gynecologist uh, called Gyne Geek Talk on my podcast, I can't remember when, and she was talking about doing um, abdominal kind of examinations and being able to really feel, sorry for this listeners, but <laughs> you've got a lot of poo still inside you, that is that it's just sitting there that should really have come out. And talking to women and they're like, well, do you not feel like you need to go to the toilet? And they're like, oh, not really. So also like motility and that brain kind of, you know, intestines kind of conversation around you need to empty your bowels, like almost like, you know, and again, this comes back to like not enough exercise, sitting at desks probably for a long time and not moving around, sitting in a sort of funny kind of way, not kind of engaging that whole area, sitting on the toilet in a, you know, funny way. I didn't think this would be part of the podcast, Ben. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, healthy well, bowel movements is so important because that's a way of you getting rid of all these estrogens that can be building up through that detox process. Well, let's touch upon it now, Lorna. I know you said you didn't want it to be part of the, co part of the podcast, but we're, we're on the topic now. So let's stay on <laughs> it. So <laughs> there's a couple of things which I know you can do. And one of them is mechanical in terms of, have you ever heard of the squatty potty? 
Yes, I love stuff like that. <laughs> I've actually got I've actually got little steps for my toilet because for some reason the toilet's really high up and I'm actually five foot two and a half, so I've got little short legs. <laughs> like like a like a small Shetland pony. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you describe yourself quite like that before, but that's good to know. <laughs> um so yeah, no, it's interesting. The squat the squatty potty though. I don't have one, but I think it's what something which people should consider if especially if they have issues like this, because it does put your put yourself in the optimal position for defecation. Yes. And I think yeah. the current westernized toilet really isn't like that. In fact, most people can't yeah. even squat low enough to to defecate like we're meant to. And if you go to yeah. I guess yeah. Um, Southeast Asia and other places, yeah. they just have a yeah. hole in the ground because they can squat low enough in order to do it properly. Yeah, and, that's how and we they, would have done I, this I, yeah, I lived in India as a child for about a year, like eight and nine years old, and you would so not even just that, like women are like doing things on the floor, so everyone's squatting down really low, mm. but everyone's kind of like, um, you know, you take you take uh, like us Brits to try and do that, and most people find that quite difficult unless they're doing lots of like yoga physio type stuff or they're just sort of like quite like bendy athletic it's it's a, it's a strange position but it's completely normal there i remember seeing women who were like almost like doing uh flower flower got flower let's start again gardening <laughs> yeah gardening and pruning and things very sort of low potted down and actually the thing also to say on all of this is that because gastrointestinal symptoms and ibs particularly and just discomfort and pain around the uh, around the large intestines, etc. So having bowel movements can be really uncomfortable for women who've got endo. So anything that makes the the whole process of the bowel movement easier, uh, you know, I'm talking about it from a sort of like detox point of view, but just literally the mechanics of it, um, it anything that makes it easier is going to be less uncomfortable as well. Mm. Okay, Th that's really interesting. In terms of the types of fiber then, I guess that would be good to, to touch upon because there's obviously different types of fiber and I'm aware that fiber also yeah. binds onto the bile inside the gut, which contains some of the estrogen and testosterone, which can then be yeah. be obviously released out. But if we, we, we're intaking high amounts of insoluble fiber, for example, would it have the same effect as soluble? Um Yes, I think you want you want a bit of a bit of both, and I tend to also find people get really tripped up on this subject and start worrying about. Yeah, that's more true. Than that. Don't want to get too I much think, into the minutia. But... No, I just I just think you know if you want to keep it super simple for yourself, and also for some people, some types of fiber that you. So I think we should talk about SIBO and FODMAP diet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some of these things that we're talking about that are going to be great for say like the immune system or the microbiome and very commonly i have women who'll say oh i bought this gut book and it said i need to have lots of i don't know like artichokes or whatever and they're like i feel absolutely awful and i'm like okay you need to have a look at what's going on here because if you've got like issues with histamine you've been eating loads of like sauerkraut and you feel awful yeah so even though sauerkraut's really good for our gut so this is if you've got gut dysbiosis and infections some of the things that we think are really good are going to kind of, you know, make it worse. Mm -hmm. So for example, I don't put probiotics in when somebody has got um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We'll wait until that's been dealt with and it's gone. And then you can put some probiotics in because there can be a risk that you start. So this is bacteria basically that's in the small intestines. It isn't really supposed to be there. And then it's going to, you eat foods that are uh, carbs that are kind of difficult to digest 
the bacteria that is there gobbles them up and then starts to ferment and produces those gases. And those gases can be really uncomfortable in that it causes lots of bloating or constipation or loose stools going on. So that's where that link with a low FODMAP diet comes in. Low FODMAP diet is very researched in, in connection to endometriosis, probably because it's a very official diet. So dietitians will use it, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it can be beneficial in terms of symptomology, but you're not actually addressing the root cause of the problem. No, it, 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 you know, you're, you're sort of fanning, fanning the flames of the situation. But again, and I've got two views on this, which is that, you know, cause, and again, like SIBO is a whole rabbit hole, so we won't go too far down it, but for the whole podcast, but um, in America, it's quite common to use um, specific antibiotics for it. And I've seen actually great success in that because it's very specific. Um, it's hard to get it prescribed here and it's expensive, but that can be good because for some people going through the natural process of it by using using uh, certain types of herbs and things, which are really good, can be can be quite a much longer process. Mm-hmm. And like I'm thinking about different situations. I'm thinking about classic person who's got not really any health issues going on, but just has SIBO yet or person who has endo, but then they've got SIBO. So if you're thinking about it, putting them on some heavy duty SIBO detox they might not be able to just really cope with that because it just sets off other symptoms too much. So sometimes going in cleaner with antibiotics can be sort of helpful because you can do all the gut restoration kind of after that as well. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So in terms of using probiotics and things of that nature, is there a particular probiotic once you've got rid of the SIBO that you would use in terms of managing gut symptoms? I, I'm, you know, I am not an over user of probiotics because i think that i think it's i think it's not a good thing also for people to think that you need to take one every single month mm-hmm. um actually what i can see sometimes on gut tests is where people have really hammered a probiotic product and it's actually they've now flipped the but kind of bacteria balance a bit too much you know i, I like the, the way i think of kind of explaining it is if you imagine you've got a house got different people in the house that kind of have different personalities and somehow everyone manages to live together and keep it all balanced but if you have too much of some personality other people might get annoyed with them so it's like if you go go you know too far the other way you can kind of get out of that balance so I, so if i'm thinking about certainly if someone's had antibiotics yes certainly if on a gut test certain certain uh, types of bacteria have shown up as, as being low then i might think about doing that but it's usually always in the short term and then it's making those direct changes that will encourage that microbiome balance so going back to things like mediterranean diet or whatever you know yeah no that makes perfect sense would the same problem arise if people are are maybe focusing on fermented foods like sauerkraut kimchi kefir etc well you know they can be one person's oh wow and somebody else's like oh no and (laughs) that can be yeah that can be lots of factors i mean the thing about just talking about histamine where so you know fermented foods can obviously create more histamine but histamine more histamine equals more estrogen right so i'll give you an example that's not an endo example so i see elevated histamine in perimenopause so this is where you've got high fluctuations of estrogen because the body's going through a process of eventually going to shut down that whole side of uh, you know reproductive hormone type thing mm-hmm. you know chapter sort of thing and women will suddenly start getting high histamine um, symptoms, but don't understand where it's coming from. And this is really weird and all that. So, and, you know, having those foods and then can get, make that worse. So again, you can come back to them once perhaps you've sort of settled things. But the key thing in this is to remember that if there's a histamine issue, 
it can be contributing towards your endometriosis because of the estrogen connection. Right. So that makes sense. So in terms of like takeaways, it should be maybe introduce probiotics as long as you understand that you haven't got any SIBO, but obviously yes. working with a practitioner. Yeah. And if you are going to include yeah. fermented foods, just maybe small amounts and see how you feel before just incorporating them all the time into every single meal. Yeah, totally. And also everyone's different. Like I'm fine on sauerkraut, but even though I love kimchi, it doesn't, isn't quite right for me, but it could also be that I'm not very good on having very hot chili. Mm, so if okay. I, if I, if I make a, like a sort of curry type meal, I actually use a lot of black pepper and ginger, which are lovely rather than going down the hot end. And to be honest, I've probably always been a bit like that. So you have to find what works for you. It's very sad though, because I do actually love kimchi so much. I think I once once went ate a whole jar in one sitting and then the rest of the day left about six months pregnant. I was like, it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be around you at the time, that's all. Oh dear, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's um, you know, it's kind of but actually on that topic, if we go back to what we were saying earlier about do we think that there's more endo? Like we had all these foods more on our diet way back, didn't we? Yeah, way back when. Um, just just more in ancient times. So actually, if you're thinking about like healthy microbiome and the immune system, we're like less healthy now, if that makes sense. Yeah, so we're, so we're less able to tolerate these things when we do actually eat them. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. Yeah, one of my favourite cookbooks, um, which I was actually gifted um, in the winter, is from an author called um, Olia Hercules. She's a chef. And she's got a lovely book called The Summer Kitchen, which basically, and it's, you have to read it from the beginning. It's like beautiful history, looking at like uh, basically fermented products and lots of pickling and lots of preserving because it comes from this concept of not really being able to refrigerate stuff properly, which has been, you know, the case for us for a long time before we had fridges. And you just look at that and you just think, oh my God, it's so much good gut stuff. So much, you know, it's so, such a lovely book to look at, by the way, great recipes. Okay, what, what's that book called? So it's called The Summer Kitchen by Olia Hercules. Yeah, by Olia Hercules. But so her previous one like that her, is great, but get The Summer Kitchen because that really looks at, if you're really into uh, things like lots of cabbage and pickled cucumbers and things, that's that's the book for that. Okay. You see, I yeah. I, I do kefir, but every time I make sauerkraut, it just never ends up that good. So it probably just <laughs> needed, <laughs> it really doesn't. So I, I need a new yeah. recipe. Yeah, and everyone's had their like sourdough starter baby that they've abandoned that has that, you know, somebody's gonna call the sourdough social services on you because you've forgotten <laughs> about it. <laughs> you didn't feed me. <laughs> I've I've not actually made sourdough yet, but that is on my list. I literally just wrote it down now. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.